So if you would, turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 11. Hebrews 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text, and I pray that in the few moments that we have to look at it, to pay attention to what you're saying to your people, I pray that it would go deep into our hearts and change us. I pray for a special sense of your presence and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 122, 1 says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. And for the Old Testament saints, that meant the tabernacle or the temple. And that represented the most significant place for the people of God to go and witness and be in the presence of God. But this place is not. More underscored than ever for us during this time, it should be very clear that the church is not a building. What is the church? What is a local church? It's not our founding documents. It's not our property. It's not our programs. It's not our schedule of events. It's a gathering of people who have been born again and have committed themselves to gathering as a people in the way that God has commanded in His Scriptures and committed themselves to one another in the way that he commands as well. For us, the house of the Lord that we should be glad when we are able to go to it is not a room inside. It is one another, even as we are being built together as a house for God by the Spirit. So in a time when almost everything of how we like things has been stripped away. And we don't know exactly what next week is going to look like. We don't have our comforts. And chaos abounds. There's confusion. There's questions. There's concerns. There's cancellations. There's closures. And we're being, for the most part, at least up until this time, closed off from each other. We each, in such a unique time, need to ask ourselves this question. What is the Lord revealing about Himself? It's not always easy to answer that question. What is the Lord saying? What, what is He impressing upon us during this time? 
But usually the answer is it's some important truth about God himself that we have up to this point been overlooking. Something that he has made plain, but because of us and our willful ignorance or turning away from the truth that we've just forgotten. We don't listen to or commit ourselves fully to God's self-revelation. And so in times of trial, it is imperative for each of us to return to the Lord. Jesus being your great high priest, securing an eternal redemption, is just such an idea. It's that type of truth, that type of realization that we tend to overlook and in times of trial we have an opportunity to refocus on. So this text gives us this opportunity. And last week I said this passage, these few verses, might be the heart of the whole book of Hebrews. So how are we going to go through a passage like this in a shorter time, hopefully? We're going to try to split it into two different parts. We're going to give four points of observation or application under each one. So I'll read the first section again. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. The first thing I want you to see is this. That Christ's priesthood is established by his indestructible life. Look closely at verse 11. But when Christ appeared as high priest. You have to remember all the way back when we talked about God's promise to bring a final priest, such a high priest. And how we would know that this is the one. Go back to Hebrews 7.16. You don't have to turn there, but it says this. Who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. He's referring to that idea. Again, he appeared as high priest. And it wasn't just merely in his birth. It wasn't just merely in his resurrection. The proof that he had such an indestructible life is proof positive that this is the one. This is the priest that was promised for so long. It was the resurrection. When he walked out of the tomb without anyone standing outside calling him forth, when he triumphs over death, that is what God gives us to prove this is the final priest forever. The Christian message, here's, here's the point in this, the Christian message, message is not just that Jesus is alive. You could come to someone who doesn't know anything about What it means to be a Christian and say, Jesus of Nazareth is alive. So what? What does that mean for you? How does that change things? He lives again to do something within you and for you. To redeem you. Believing in the mere fact that Jesus is alive makes makes no difference for you if you're not redeemed. The demons know he's alive. 
The most important question right now for us is not how long this pandemic will go on for or how many people will die or how our nation nation will survive economically or if this is even the end of the world or not. None of those are of any importance whatsoever compared to this. Are you reconciled to God in and through the death and life of Jesus Christ being applied to you? Jesus lives whether you believe it or not. He's alive. But he may not be your high priest if you do not approach God alone on the basis of his sacrifice. So his resurrection only has significance for you if he is that person for you, the only one you depend on. So that's the first. His priesthood is established by his indestructible life. That's how he appeared as high priest. The second thing I want you to see here is that he is preeminent. Christ is preeminent or best. And that is demonstrated by the better covenant, the better tent, the better holy place, and his blood. See this in the text. The good things that have appeared, Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come. He's referring back to chapter 8 where he said that this new covenant that has come, God has found fault with the first and he has established a second And Christ comes as the priest of that second, better covenant. And then the text says, the greater and more perfect tent. That refers to the heavenly sanctuary. Not the one made with hands in this creation, but the one in heaven, the eternal one. And then he says, he entered into the holy places. The the, the holy places Jesus entered into are not the most holy place in the temple in Jerusalem at the time. Isn't that amazing? That Jesus, the Son of God, established as high priest forever, never went into that most holy place. But when he goes to heaven, he enters the most holy place in the eternal realm. It's eternal. It's rooted in the very character of God. And it is mysteriously the same thing as being at his right, at his right hand. It's one thing to say Jesus is best or preeminent. But what would you point to in order to prove that Christ is in fact preeminent? Let's say someone were to ask you, a non-believer, and you're, you're out witnessing or you're talking to a non-believing friend and, and you were to ask, uh, say to them, well, Jesus is better than all these other religions. What would you point to? Your emotions? Well, I I know, I feel in my heart that Jesus is great and wonderful. Every religion can say that about their way of doing things. It's equally as meaningful to them. You don't think there's life-changing spiritual experiences in any other worldview? How should you answer? How would you say to them, Jesus is best? He's best or preeminent because he is the only mediator and high priest of God's final covenant with man. The only covenant that could ever reconcile God to man and man to God. Jesus brought those things. It's not some, here's, here's the point. It's not something outside of Jesus that he points us to. 
He doesn't come and say, here's the good life and here's how you should live in a way that pleases God. He says, I am the life that pleases God. I am the way. I am the truth. I bring all these things. All of the blessings of God are found in me. Secondly, Jesus is best, preeminent, because his indestructible life, demonstrated in his thunderous triumph over the grave, proves that he is the chosen only mediator of this covenant of grace. Just as the hymn says, crown him the Lord of life who triumphed over the grave and rose victorious in the strife for those he came to save. His glories now we sing who died and rose on high, who died eternal life to bring and lives that death may die. What other religious leader can say that? Jesus is best and preeminent because he alone is qualified to enter into the heavenly places of worship, even the most holy place in heaven. And as He enters, we cry as the psalm says, Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. And the Father Himself calls to Him as He approaches, Sit at my right hand while I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Jesus is best. He is preeminent because The way he sealed the covenant, the way he ratified it, the way he enacted this new covenant, the way he made it effective is by the means of his own blood. If you were born again into this new covenant, if you are in Christ, then your hope is truly built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. What can Gandhi offer? What can Gautama Buddha offer? What can Joseph Smith offer? What can Muhammad offer? What can the Pope offer himself? What can the scientists of our day offer? What can the celebrities offer? What can the artists offer? What can our leaders offer? What can you offer? The best that we can offer of our own selves is some good or bad ideas about how the world is working or not working. That's it. Every religious leader comes and says, I think I have the key. Here's how I think you should live. Christ offers his own blood. Of course he teaches us how to live, but he offers his own blood to seal this covenant so that we can be reconciled to God. We don't have anything to offer of ourselves. He brings it all in his own blood. The Christian message and the message of Jesus is not, it's not this, Love God, be like Jesus, be kind to others, and God will let you into heaven. The whole point of the gospel is this, that Christ alone has secured entrance into heaven. 
And he alone has eternal life in himself, and he gives it to whomever he will. And he only gives that free gift of eternal life, of entrance into heaven, to those who abandon all hope in anything other than him. Christ also has permanence, and that is guaranteed by the sufficiency of his blood. This isn't just the blood of some random sacrifice. The blood that Jesus offers up, being his own blood, connected mysteriously with his indestructible and and eternal life. That phrase, the blood of Jesus, carries the sense that he offered his own life even to the point of death, even death on a cross. He gave his life in death, blood. That's what you should see there in that word. So not only is his blood, is is Christ exclusive, but the sense we're considering here is its permanence. Because Jesus has eternal life in himself, when he offers up his blood, it has the ability to secure an eternal redemption because his life is eternal and he gave that life to Ransom us. See it in the text here when it says, once for all? Once for all what? I think most naturally the context would supply the idea of once for all time. We'll see this in chapter 10, verse 12. But here I think he leaves it off intentionally. Once for all, in every sense conceivable, for any possible world, for any person, for any depths of sin you might have sunk to, for any degree of rebellion you're in right now, for any suffering that you long to be redeemed and to make sense of at any point in all human history, if you're from any nation, any ethnicity, whether things present or things to come, Christ's death is once for all. There is no other way. No other sacrifice. No other approach to God. No salvation but in Christ's death. And then we see Christ's promise, the first part, thus securing an eternal redemption. I hope we all love this idea that Christ's redemption is eternal. But I want you to see that this is made possible by everything that we've just said. Primarily, that it was because his death, in his death, that this new covenant was made. And that he entered into the heavenly most holy place by means of his blood and he is there now forever and because of that he can offer you an eternal redemption. Our redemption, this is the point, is not on shaky ground precisely because Jesus' right to enter that place is not on shaky ground. Do you get that? He always lives to make intercession. And it's eternal. It's an eternal redemption versus what? 
versus temporary? What, what if the redemption that God offered you was only 10 million years? And then it disappeared and you would face the consequences of your sin. How would you feel about that? What if your security and your redemption were dependent on your works? And if you didn't amass enough good works, you could fall out of this redemption. What if you had to make pilgrimage each year to the temple to maintain yourself in the covenant? And it's secure. It's not dependent on your performance. For the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? In this second section, the author explains further his point and he underscores the essence of his argument here. The first thing I want you to see is this, and I always want to point this out if it's ever there in the text. There's harmony with the Spirit and the Father. There's tri-unity here. The Christ, it's implied because of chapter 1, Christ the Son has offered himself through the eternal Spirit to God the Father. So why would the author underscore this here? I believe he wants us to see the unity of God's purpose in Christ. Jesus isn't just off doing his own thing, redeeming mankind, while the other members of the Trinity do their own thing. There are some marriages like that. I'll do my thing, you do your thing, and we'll just validate each other and not get in each other's way, just living essentially two separate lives. That's not what's going on in the Trinity. This is the plan for all time by all persons of the Godhead, And in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. And here's the point. In Christ, we don't get what is second best. He is very God of God. He is the only God at the right hand of God who has made God known. This is not a side point. There is no experience of God or further depths of your Christian walk that is not fully found in the person of Jesus. Anything that is not rooted in him and in his work is vain fanaticism. In essence, if you want any experience of God or any sense of spiritual death or spiritual life, Without Christ, you are essentially falling into the same snare that the religious leaders did during Jesus' time. They wanted to worship the Lord, Yahweh, but they didn't want to have anything to do with Jesus. Don't make the same mistake. So he has unity in his person with the Godhead. And also look at his propitiation. He offered his blood 
to God for sins. Within that harmony, within the Trinity, he offered his own blood. This offering of blood does something. Jesus' death doesn't merely show us God's love for us. It doesn't merely show us that he has goodwill towards us. It doesn't merely give us an example to follow of laying down our lives. It doesn't just merely redefine love for us. It does all those things, but that's not the main point. Jesus offering his blood changes something in God. That's why it's the most significant event in all human history. His blood was offered up to God for the purification of his people. God's wrath is averted. God is said by Paul in Romans 3 to be justified in the gospel. Romans 1 speaks of this this kind of amassing debt of wrath that is accumulating to those who are unrepentant. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment shall be revealed. That wrath has to be dealt with or spent or God is not just and God is not righteous. So Christ offers himself, his own life, in his death... As a propitiation, as a wrath-averting sacrifice, he absorbs the wrath of God in himself in harmony with the Father and the Eternal Spirit. It is not God versus God in the atonement. It is God in unity, creating a people for God by the blood of the Son of God. For his own bride. Someone might ask, how how is it that he could stand in my place and take the punishment that was rightly mine? The most basic answer is love. The love of Christ makes that possible. We'll move on. Notice also Christ's purification. He purges uh, purges us from the defilement of dead works. Dead works. Why wouldn't he just say sin? I mean, that's, that's what we would expect. He says that in chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. But here the author uses dead works. Why? Because he's already given us a contrast of the Old Testament versus this new covenant in Christ's blood. So this this phrase, dead works, obviously means sins. And we would obviously recognize some sins as being particularly dead. like, Like murder and adultery and stealing. But here God includes anything that is not from faith in Christ. Dead works... That would include good works offered to God instead of the blood of Christ. This is the problem with every other religion and even Christian legalism. 
that you accumulate good credit to your name through living rightly or obeying God and then God loves you or is more inclined to bless you because of the good things that you have done. That's dead works. The very point of God giving the law was to show that sin was actually sin and to become sinful beyond measure and to imprison everything under the law so it might be liberated in Christ alone. And prove that it was never going to be through the law that anyone would be justified. The most simple way to put it is this. Good works, right living, faithfulness even, do not make you more lovely to God. His love for you and acceptance of you is based totally on Christ's work. Specifically, His blood. This is what we mean by saying we are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. It's not just because God picked faith because he wanted it to be uh, not by sight and that's how God works and just trust him, it's a mystery. No. It's because Jesus' blood is the only act that has ever earned entrance into heaven. There's no other way. It's impossible. That's why it must be totally on the basis of his son's work. So if you have confidence in anything else to earn your interest, to justify you, to give you eternal life, then Christ is of no advantage to you. And you're still in your sins. This is what... God means when he chooses to speak so that everyone around can hear, this is my beloved son, in him I am well pleased. Obviously now we obey because he has accepted us and purified us, but our works, our life is not what makes us acceptable to him. You need to understand this. I want you to listen carefully. If God's feelings toward you were even solely based on your best day, and if even if you could cut out all of your bad days, then God would have to hate you. You can't begin to appreciate the gospel unless you see that. Even when I do good, evil lies close at hand. Our righteousness are as filthy rags before him. And we think that he will take sin lightly. And we can't in that moment appeal to his general love for creation. Because in this creation, he has revealed what we owe to him in worship, and we have chosen the creature rather than the creator. It is Christ alone 
Christ alone, Christ alone that makes you acceptable to God. But it is not as if saying in Christ alone that we are acceptable, that that it's barely enough. The point is that in Jesus' life, we are fully acceptable to God. His righteousness is enough to satisfy and earn forever entrance into the very presence of God. Not just for himself. He has no sin and is God himself, but for every person anywhere who would trust in him, his blood is enough. You know, to give a particular encouragement to mothers at this point. You're not acceptable to God because you're a great mother. You don't lose your acceptance in his sight. Your your legacy, your place in heaven is not in question if you're failing in mothering. We can get so caught up in trusting in our own works as, as a way to essentially give meaning and validation to our lives and to make it precious in God's sight when everything that makes our lives precious to him has been done finally, forever, finished in Christ. You are fully accepted before God in his Son forever. Hopefully that releases you from the slavery that we can all do, regardless of where we are and what our vocations are, with your mothers, fathers, husbands, wives, whatever. Of the perpetual rat race of trying to work peace into our hearts, feeling like we, we, we've, we've got to make it happen so that we can feel like we're accepted with God when it's all been done. And that's just one example of the immediate and stunning implications of the atonement. So here's the second part of Christ's promise. Qualification to serve the living God. It's not just some random accumulation of divine blessings that we have in Christ. There taking us somewhere. Notice the order that that Jesus has offered up himself and he has purified his people and cleansed our conscience from dead works in order that we may serve the living God. Now understand, we don't serve God in in, in this sense. He doesn't need our help. We serve him because he first served us. It carries the same flavor of we love because he first loved us. And not only is it legalism to get it switched around in your mind, it's exhausting and deeply depressing. Service here is probably not what you think. We need to be careful that we don't think of God in pagan ways, that he's this deity up in heaven and he's trying to figure it out and he's waiting for people to accomplish his purpose on earth and he can't really get it into order unless we get it into order and help him. God doesn't need us to fulfill his purposes in the world. He is not dependent on our cooperation or service in order to do what he has set out to do. 
His eternal plan cannot be thwarted. As Jesus says to the religious leaders, if I tell my disciples to be quiet and they actually stop praising me, these rocks are going to cry out. God's purposes can't be undone. But service here carries with it the flavor of temple service. That that we are now qualified to minister to God even in the holy places in heaven. Just as Jesus does. We mentioned the cherubim last week, and I'll mention them again here. But imagine them, these awful and glorious angels in the presence of God, praising him for all time. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And how do they do that? How is it that they are arranged before the throne? They have six wings and with two they fly. And with two, they cover their feet. And with two, they cover their eyes. So in that very place, in the very presence of God, sinless beings, greater in glory than us, have to cover their face. So they are serving God in a sense, but they they have to veil it. They can't appreciate it fully. They, the, God's holiness is so bright and magnificent that they can't experience it fully. But for us, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed from run, one degree of glory to the next. This is what service is. Even as the cherubim serve God in his presence, just experiencing his greatness and holiness and praising him forever, but veiled. That we in Christ with unveiled face behold the glory of the Lord and praise him and serve him in that way. This is true service to God. It is through faith in his son beholding the glory of the Lord in the face of Jesus and delighting in him and proclaiming our delight in him. All made possible by his blood, purifying us, not just from sin, but also from dead works to qualify us to serve in this way. And this is my question for you that we'll conclude on. Does anything that I've said even closely approximate what you would call your Christian life? Do you sense at the deepest level that you are being drawn into the very presence of God to witness this most holy being before whom even sinless, glorious angels can't even look? And that your heart is being transformed and cleansed from dead works so that you can see him more fully and appreciate his majesty and declare your delight in him to others, to yourself and to the Lord. Is that, what, is, is that what's happening at all? It has implications for how we do church, what we mean by any type of sacrifice, what we mean by Christian living at all. It has implications for all time, not just during a pandemic or when things are back to normal, forever. And it has implications today 
Even though we're going to conclude here in a few moments, I'm going to pray and we'll be dismissed. And those who are further at the back, if y'all would just leave first so we don't run into anybody with the cars. Even while we're processing through the, the logistical challenges of dismissing here, know that the offer is on the table from the Lord. Becoming a Christian isn't really about accepting God. It's that God will accept you in His Son. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And I pray that the truth um, has the power to change us this morning. I pray that you would work around and through and against all the challenges that have been in place today. I pray that we would be encouraged as we go and that you would transform us even now. That you would cleanse our conscience by your blood. Help us understand that we are fully accepted in Christ before you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.